Welcome to Connect the Dots podcast, presented by Nine Dots and hosted by Jeffrey Klein. We explore stories of success and their multitude of dots that are connected along the way. Sharing these stories, our aim is to provide some context to the path of success, which is often paved with obstacles, challenges, victories, and celebrations. Thank you for listening. Here is your host, Jeffrey. My guest on this episode is Professor William Taubman, an accomplished academic and author. But this episode is not focused on academic theories, but instead uh, we hear stories of Professor Taubman's journey from only being 16 when he entered Harvard and to the chance when he almost joined the CIA and, of course, when he won the Pulitzer Prize. Enjoy listening. My guest today is Professor William Taubman. He is currently the Bertrand Snell Professor of Political Science at Amherst College, where he teaches courses on Russian politics and rethinking the Cold War, as well as interdisciplinary courses entitled War, Poverty, and Personality and the Political Leadership. He has an AB from Harvard College, master's and PhD from Columbia University and an honorary degree from Amherst College. He has many academic awards including the National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, the Guggenheim Fellowship. He is author of many scholarly articles and book and his biography of Nikita Khrushchev won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography and the National Book Critics Circles Award for Biography. His latest book out now is Gorbachev, His Life and Times. Welcome, Professor Taubman. I am very glad to be talking with you. I guess for full disclosure, I should let people know that I actually took an intro to political science at Amherst with Professor Taubman uh, a few years ago. Well, we won't we don't need to get into that. Um, and it, it was a pleasure. I hope, you, I hope you've repressed that, um, <laughs> that memory. Uh, it was a great memory. As a, I was young and, and didn't know much, and, and you, you, were, you, were, you really were a fantastic professor. Um, so thank you. So I'd like to start in the beginning. Where were you born, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in 1941 in New York City. Uh, my father was a music critic at that point for the New York Times. He later became the music critic and then the drama critic and finally critic at large. My mother was a high school English teacher. So with music, your father being a a music critic, um, did you ever think as a kid, I want to grow up and be a musician or be a critic? I I certainly studied the piano for five or six years, and then I studied the clarinet for four or five years. But I was never under the illusion that I could really be a professional musician. And in fact, Later in life, I resumed piano lessons twice, once when I came to Amherst, once before that. But both times I gave up after listening to real musicians like Vladimir Hurwitz and all the others, and I knew I could never do that. But I was glad that I'd studied music. So as a kid, was there something that you thought, I assume you didn't wake up and think, oh, I want to be a political science professor when you were eight or nine. Was there certain something you said, oh, when I grow up, I want to be whether, you know, sports, astronaut, anything like that? Well, I I don't remember having uh, a great goal like that in life, but I do remember reading stories about space, future space travel uh, and imagining myself uh, engaged in it. 
but that didn't become a quest. <laughs> so I, I'm just curious, when, when we talk about space travel with people, uh, there is now the opportunity and, and should for consumer and normal people to go up into space. If you had that opportunity, would you be interested in doing it? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty definitive. Uh, why no. not? Well, for one thing, I'm getting along in years. It's probably too old for it. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm a fairly cautious person who uh, takes on challenges uh, and tries to rise to them. But that kind of challenge would be more than I uh, would want to bargain for. <laughs> uh, speaking of being cautious, so I'm curious, uh, as I look at successful people and how they kind of grew up in, in things, uh, whether or not at some point in your earlier years you kind of learned a lesson that made you that way, that made you either cautious or, or curious or anything. Is there any time you can think of where someone, you kind of, you know, you're a teacher, I'm wondering if you ever learned a lesson early on that had sort of an impact on your life? Well, I, I observed uh, very closely and I think modeled myself on my father, uh, who was a star in my eyes, especially since his name appeared in the New York Times you know, every other day. And when he became drama critic in 1960, his name appeared in lights on Broadway. Um, wow. And he wow. was a very impressive man. Uh, and he was, what I learned from him was how to work hard and how to think uh, carefully and realistically and how to accept challenges, but uh, not un, uh, impossible ones. I think I, I modeled myself uh, on him, and and caution, but not too much of it, was part of the model that uh, he taught. And you said he was a star. You looked up to him as, as someone you wanted to aspire to be like. Yes. In fact, I think looking back in retrospect, I, I aspired to, but I doubted that I ever would. In fact, I remember one point, I was guess I was already teaching at Amherst, and I was struggling to write initial articles and, uh, and, and a book. And at one point in a kind of optimistic cheerleading mood, he said, well, you know, you'll be like John Kenneth Galbraith. I took that to mean that was the famous Harvard economist, also ambassador to India under President Kennedy. And Galbraith was a magnificent writer. And so he combined scholarly credentials with uh, a wonderful, graceful pen. And he was celebrated. And I remember thinking, no, I never will. Uh, and in fact, for many, many years, that that bothered me a lot. <laughs> but I think uh, I don't prove, proven your father right, unfortunately. Um, well, it took all I can say is that if I have and I'm not sure I have, it took 30 years probably to get to that point. Which will bring me to my next question regarding. So what was your first paying job? My first paying job was, well, we had a, they, my parents bought a house in Danbury, Connecticut, a summer place, and next door was a farm. And when I was a young teenager, I worked for the farmer next door, uh, weeding uh, the fields and sort of pitching hay. Uh, I don't remember, the, remember whether he paid me, though. So <laughs> we, we assume for the paid moment. It, that, paid in that great experience, of course. Yes. But if he, if he didn't, then the answer is that uh, I was a camp counselor uh, for three summers while I was in college at a day camp in Danbury, and I was paid for that. Excellent. So you're teaching even then? Uh, five, young, and six, yeah, five and six-year-olds. To young, to young minds, exactly. 
Uh, and then you went to Harvard, you know, not, not a shabby institution. Uh, how did that shape your early career? Did you, was that when you decided you sort of thought academia, and, or what was that experience that really took you in the direction you ended up going? Well, I did major in history, which I have ended up writing, even though I've trained as a political scientist. And I did start studying Russian in my freshman year. So the, the connection was there. But I have to admit, I, I, I had skipped the eighth grade at Joan of Arc Junior High School in New York. And so when I graduated from Bronx High School of Science, uh, I was 16. And I was actually 16 when I entered Harvard, 20 when I graduated. And I was very young. I was quite intimidated by the place and especially by all of the young men in blue button down shirts and khaki pants who seemed to me to be uh, the kind of uh, wasp elite who had gone to Exeter and Andover and seemed at home in the world while I was trying to figure out what the hell to do and how to do it. Is there someone you've met? in the course of your life that kind of had a, aside from your father, obviously, who had kind of changed the course of where you ended up, the direction you ended up going? Well, I'm not sure he changed it, but I did have a mentor at Amherst in my first years here. Now, I don't remember, Jeff, when you were, when you were here, but this probably was before your time. Uh, his name was Earl Latham. He was the chairman of the political science department when I got here. And he, at first encounter, seemed to be a kind of gruff, tough ogre, but he turned out to have in my experience, <laughs> a warm, fuzzy inside. Yes, a heart of gold, <laughs> and he kind of adopted me as a as a project, uh, and he sort of was stern, but also supportive. And uh, when I uh, was initially teaching, with all the doubts that came along with that, he encouraged me and. I remember at one point in, I think, 1975-6, the uh, then commandant of the Naval War College in in Rhode Island, uh, Stansfield Turner, got an honorary degree at Amherst, and I was asked to be his host. And then Turner invited a bunch of us down to the Naval War College, where we debated the Vietnam War. And then, lo and behold, in 1976, Turner became director of the CIA under Carter. And one day my phone rang and it was Turner. And he'd said, how would you like to come down and work for the CIA? And that was, that was a time when the CIA w- was not popular at all at Amherst College. Uh, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. So I said, no. And then he called back a little later and said, well, how would you like to be scholar in residence at the CIA? And that sounded much more tempting scholar. That was what I was trying to be. And I figured I could get to see a lot of documents about the Soviet Union, which would help me in my work. So I went to Latham and said, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. And he, in effect, grumped and said, look, either you're going to be a scholar or you're not going to be a scholar. If you are, stay here and do your work rather than go down there. So I stayed and did my work. And prior prior to going to Amherst as a, as a professor, you know, in college and, and I guess graduate school, where when did you realize like I want to be an academic? And did being an academic mean the same thing in terms of research and study as well as being a teacher? No, I took my time deciding I wanted to be an academic, and I have to admit that I got a push from the Vietnam War. Uh, that is to say, I entered graduate school in 1962 at Columbia. 
And if I had not been in graduate school, I would have been drafted uh, and gone to Vietnam. And, and I didn't like the idea of that because I didn't believe in the war and I didn't want to die on, uh, in a battle. Uh, and uh, so I stayed in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, I also had the thought that, well, at some point, I, like my father, could become a journalist. Uh, but by the time I got my PhD, I thought, well, I've got a PhD, I should teach for a while. So I started teaching, and one thing led to another, and I stayed on. I, 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 I should add this, if, if I'm not talking too long in, in answer to your questions. But my, my father, as a journalist, was as a music critic, was sometimes criticized by academics. Um, uh, and he would, he would say, well, they can't write their way out of a paper bag. And, and then when I became- Were you, were you a professor at that point? I was an instructor or an assistant professor. And then when I became an assistant professor, I would listen to my academic colleagues say when they didn't really like something that somebody had written, well, that's just journalism. (laughs) So, So I was caught in between. I wanted somehow to be an academic who could write for a general reader. In other words, write my way out of the paper bag. But again, that took me many years. I thrashed around. I tried various things. Uh, and finally, I think I've succeeded in doing scholarship that is uh, accessible to and attractive to general readers. So, uh, interestingly, did is there a point at which you considered yourself a success? Was it the you know the Pulitzer? Is that kind of like well, I can write for people that are going to understand and engage with my material? Well, you know, this is uh, I I don't want to put myself on a, on your psychiatrist's couch. <laughs> Wasn't but, intending to. But no, that's okay, because this is life. I mean, like a lot of people I've met along the way, one has doubts about oneself and wonders just how successful you are. Uh, And I knew I was getting to be a very good teacher, although not immediately at all. Uh, I had written stuff. I had written a book uh, in 19, as early as 1966, seven, when I came back from Russia, but it wasn't a scholarly book. Then I published my dissertation, but it wasn't a great scholarly book. Uh, I was writing things, but I, I wasn't living up to my highest hopes for myself until I finally did in the, by writing the Khrushchev biography and then the Gorbachev biography. And the Khrushchev biography was published in 2003. And at that point, I was 62 years old. So I think it's fair to say that I didn't really feel as if I had accomplished what I dreamed of accomplishing until I was 62 years old. So there's hope for me. Yes, <laughs> there's hope for everyone, but it ain't easy. So along, what's the most surprising place you found yourself, whether it is a position, a, a job, I mean, the CIA could have been that, uh, or a location, or engaging with a person. Is there something that stands out as like, you would have never thought that I would have been here? Well, here we go again with, with, uh, with some part of the story I've already been talking about. When I got that Pulitzer Prize in 2004, that was the, the, the acme, as it were. I had maybe allowed myself from time to time to think that I could aspire to such a thing. I remember a couple of times I sort of admitted that to my wife, Jane, who was a teacher in Amherst for many years, uh, teaching Russian. 
And she's a wonderful wife and a wonderful person, but she, one of the wonderful things about her is that she punctured my Walter Mitty dreams when I dared to uh, admit them. And so when I hinted that I thought I could conceivably be a candidate for that, she punctured that dream right then and there uh, in a very she nice way. Trying to keep you grounded, I'm sure. Yeah. So when I finally got that, that was a, that was a surprise that I had allowed myself to imagine might conceivably happen, but when it actually happened, it was magical. So what did your wife, Jane, say when, when that actually did occur? <laughs> did you say, I told you so? No, she didn't say, I told you no, so. You, you should have told her, I told you so, because you were the one who thought it could happen. <laughs> she looked uh, as, as just about as happy as I was. Um, so... Sure. Uh, yeah, and she's been wonderfully supportive. And on the Gorbachev book, uh, we really did most of it together. She and I interviewed him, and we worked in the archives. And she has always been my first reader, you know, reading the stuff whom I wouldn't dare, would I, that I wouldn't dare show to anybody else because it's so rough, and encouraging me to make it better. I'm curious about your choice of sort of becoming a Russian scholar. So at some point you, you're studying history, you're studying, I assume, Russia as part of that. At what point do you say, okay, I'm going to become the Russian scholar? Like that this, what about Russia appealed to you that you decided this is where I want to focus my you know, career? Well, there's no doubt that I was focused on that as early as my freshman year in college, taking Russian, taking history. But in retrospect, I, I'm not exactly sure why. I can, I can imagine three possible explanations one is that my maternal grandparents were both from Russia. They spoke Russian. My mother did not. Uh, but that must have influenced me in a way that I wasn't entirely aware of. Another was that I was a news junkie as a kid. I followed the Cold, the Cold War and its ups and downs and Eisenhower and Khrushchev and Kennedy. So I was sort of hooked on that kind of thing very early on. And then a third thing that almost sounds too intellectual and sophisticated for it to be true. But I remember that I had a couple of relatives who were, in my eyes, surprisingly positive about the Soviet experience, even including elements of its Stalinist uh, period. And by that point, I knew this was either high school or early in college, that Stalin had become a mass murderer on, a, on an almost unprecedented scale. And I wondered, what was Stalin? How did he become the Soviet leader? What did he actually do? And furthermore, how were his crimes connected, if they were connected at all, with the initial original Marxist vision of a kind of utopia on Earth? And I remember beginning to think about that question when I was in college. And when I was teaching at Amherst, I made that in a way, the central question of the course I taught on Soviet politics. So I can see the connections going way back, and they did indeed uh, begin early on. And was Amherst the first place that you taught? The first and the last and place. The last, so. <laughs> and how, were there other places? I mean, Amherst is a very small um, college. Coming from Columbia, from New York City even, did you was that intentional that you wanted a small liberal arts kind of environment? Or did you consider other places? No, it was not that I wanted Amherst, but that Amherst wanted me. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> they <enough>. called me up. <laughs> it's, 
it's now their, you know, their game. Well, they called me up and asked me to uh, come up and be interviewed for a job. And at that point, I was actually, I had come back from a year in Moscow as an exchange student, and I was trying to write a book about it, which eventually I did called The View from Lennon Hills, which is where Moscow University is located. I came up to Amherst. I was interviewed. I was offered the job. I was hadn't even begun writing my dissertation, but I took the job. And so suddenly, here I was trying to teach new material, trying to think about what I would write my dissertation on, uh, a long way to go. Um, that's how I got to Amherst. And then one thing led to another, and I stayed. Well, one, th one thing led to another, included the fact that Jane, my wife, uh, I came up here in 67, and she was began teaching at Smith in 68. We didn't know each other at that point. But within a week of her arrival, we were introduced, and we got married. That was in September. We got married the next May. And uh, she was teaching here, too. And so suddenly we had a family in, um, in Amherst and two people teaching. She then moved to Amherst College herself. And this was an almost ideal arrangement within walking distance for two jobs. Mm -hmm. But I should also say that, uh, perhaps anticipating a question of yours to come, that I think Amherst turned out to be the perfect place for me because um, it's small. You teach interdisciplinary courses with other people, sometimes in other departments. You do, you learn from them as you do. And your students, uh, really good, uh, smart undergraduates, I think are the counterpart or the closest thing you can find to the kinds of general readers that I eventually wanted to write for. You know, if I'd been teaching at a graduate school, I would have felt uh, a kind of kind of responsibility to um, teach graduate students the field of political science. But at Amherst, my primary responsibility, as I understood it, was to interest undergraduates in my subject, period. I didn't have to teach them a field like political science. I had to just teach them to care about the world. So that's that fit the, the kind of writing I wanted to do in the long run. And you've done both. So you've been, as many professors, you, you've been a professor and an author. Do you have a preference? Do they kind of complement each other? Do you think one feeds the other? Yes, they do complement each other. As I just said, they feed each other in the sense that in trying to explain Soviet politics, let's say, to a, a class of undergraduates, I was in effect speaking to them in, for the most part, ordinary language. I wasn't getting too deeply involved in the kinds of theorizing which would might characterize the graduate study of political science. Um, so there, there was that connection. Uh, and, um, well, that, that connection became particularly graphic and interesting when for the last seven years, uh, actually for the last couple of years, I haven't taught while finishing my book, but uh, the seven or 10 years before that, I taught a course on Gorbachev, the subject of my new biography. Uh, and for the last few years of that course, I actually assigned students to read my rough manuscript and, and I begged them to be critical. And of course, since I was grading their papers, they were not quite as critical as um, I had begged, <laughs> begged them to be. But they were very good, and and there were times when they would ask me questions that hadn't occurred to me. Um, so 
And I'll give you one other example, uh, and this is Amherst again at its essence. Uh, at one point after I was working on Khrushchev's biography, I started talking to a professor of psychology at Amherst, uh, Amy Demarest, trying to get her to help me think about personality. And we decided to teach a course together, which you mentioned early on, personality and political leadership. And so for many years we did that, and she would assign and I would learn to or try to understand uh, personality theory. And then we would read psychobiographies. And uh, as we did, um, we would, uh, I would, I would learn what to look for in a life, whether it of Khrushchev or Gorbachev. So I'm not, a, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a professional. But I sort of learned to notice things uh, that otherwise would be puzzling, uh, that that didn't seem readily explainable. And then I would think about what they might mean in psychological terms. And all of that fed into these two books. That sounds really interesting. In terms of academia as both a profession and also higher education, which I'm, I'm interested as I have young children, and I'm thinking about the debate that seems to be rising about the cost of education and the return on investment. Uh, do you have any theories about what's next for academia? for students and for professors? Well, I'm not as well informed about that as you might think, because for the last um, 13 years of my teaching, I teach, I taught, <laughs> I teach, mm -hmm. I taught a reduced load. Uh, and I, and for the last seven or eight years, I, I wasn't really as involved in uh, department meetings and faculty meetings. But my sense is that there is more and more attention to things like collaborative learning, collaborative projects, uh, much more attention to teaching itself. You know, when I started teaching here, they just threw you in the water and expected you to swim. Now they have all kinds of, uh, they have a teaching and learning center. They have uh, sessions for teachers on how to teach and how to be inclusive in your teaching and how to respond to the diversity, uh, economic, racial, and otherwise of, of your students. Uh, they're much more serious about that, and, and uh, I would imagine, I'm sure, it pays off, because in my day, you, you either did it or you didn't, or you learned or you didn't, and it was catch as catch can. And what's next for Professor Taubman? So you've just written the book. Obviously, that's taking up a lot of your time now. What's next? I wish I knew. Uh, the one thing I do know is that I is that there will be something next, uh, health and permitting. That is, uh, I am not sure. I could go back to teaching, but I'm not sure I will because I I would like to take on another subject, another big subject if I have the energy to do it. Is but Putin I don't. Putin on the list? Well, Putin is not on the list because <laughs> tempting as that would be, I mean, he's the next obvious Russian leader that a lot of people would like to understand better through the kind of biography that I've written of Khrushchev and Gorbachev. But he's not retired. He is the, uh, the acting, he is the president. I can't imagine, or maybe I can, how difficult it would be to uh, you know, work with him, uh, to be somehow admitted to his secrets. I can't imagine that at all. I mean, some people have, uh, 
have disappeared on this earth because they tried too hard to find out his secrets. Well, see, if you had experience with the CIA, you might have been in a better position to do this. So, so I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Brezhnev, Bre there's a biography of Brezhnev really needs to be written, but he's not my idea of, of, of the kind of exciting, interesting character I think I'd like to write about. So I don't know. I'm, I, I need a period of time once this book has settled in to ponder this whole question and decide what to do next. And just going back, if you hadn't gone the academic author route, what career do you think you might have ended up in? Do you think you would have been a journalist? Yes, I would have tried. I remember in the summer of 1963, 63, yes, uh, I was supposed to have a job in Washington. It fell through. I came back to Danbury where my parents had a house. And I worked for the newspaper, the local newspaper, the Danbury News Times, for the whole summer. And I kept my clippings. I have, I have a folder somewhere. And once in a while, I take a look back and I see things like a piece I did on French fried ice cream <laughs> as, as it was prepared in a, in a local uh, uh, store, restaurant. And uh, I, I, that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I think I would have tried to do. Whether I would have been a success at it, I don't know. How far I would have gone in it, I don't know. But my brother, Philip Taubman, worked for the New York Times for many years as, uh, at one point, Moscow bureau chief, Washington bureau chief. Uh, he's now at Stanford writing books the way I am. My sister-in-law, his wife, worked at the New York Times for many years. So, so in a way, I'm, I'm kind of the black sheep of my family and that I did not pursue a career in journalism, but at the academy instead. I want to go back to the Pulitzer Prize only because it's, it is one of those achievements that so many people aspire to. So you started to entertain the potential that that would happen. What was it like when you, you know, got, I assume you get, you know, nominated potentially for it and then you actually won? Like, no, that, you, what was that well, experience well, like? Don't, you don't know you're nominated. What happens is publishers, later on I was on the jury for the Pulitzer Prize in biography, so I learned from the inside what I didn't know when I was up for it myself the first time. Uh, what happens is publishers all over, the, all over the map submit books of all sorts. And when I was a juror, I, I had to look through, I don't know, hundreds of them. Uh, and then there's a committee of three people uh, who winnow that list down to three finalists, which they submit to the Pulitzer Prize, whatever it's called, board. Uh, and you don't know that your book has been submitted, if it has been. And then you don't find out until the moment they announce it, which was on a Monday afternoon at three o'clock. And um, Did you know, you know they were announcing them then? Like, were you interested I, in waiting to hear? Well, I felt like a fool because uh, there I was waiting for the announcement, thinking that I might have a chance, when in fact, I, my candidacy might have been deep six months before. Right. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a fool's, er fool's errand, but luckily, miraculously in my case, it came true. And what was the experience of winning like? Well, it was, it was, it was immensely gratifying. I mean, I don't want to sound as if I, had a, as if I have a swelled head, but at that moment, I guess I did. I mean, to me, it felt like a kind of validation uh, of everything that I had worked for. 
I, I will also mention uh, that at one point in beginning in the mid 90s and extending maybe five years, I had an often off again on again case of what's called chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, they don't quite know what it, is, what it is. They don't quite know where it comes from. But if you have it, you know it because you feel exhausted, enervated. Uh, and it came and went. And, and yet I continued working on my Khrushchev book. There were times I would sit at my desk for 20 minutes working on the book and then lie down on the floor of my study in Frost Library for 20 minutes and then get up and write for 20 more. And uh, I wondered whether it would ever go away. I've read accounts of people for whom it has never gone away. Anyway, um, all I can say is when the book came out and it was did very well in reviews, and then when I got the Pulitzer Prize, it went away. <laughs> the, the chronic fatigue. So you now know the cure for chronic fatigue is to write a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. It was a cure for almost everything that ailed me, says he. That's, that's wonderful. So if you could go back in time and change one decision you made, what would it be? This, this is going to require some, some reflection. Um, I'm not sure I would change anything. You know, some of the decisions I made, for example, sticking with uh, academic work rather than journalism at times seemed to me like a mistake. I was tempted early on to wonder whether, you know, in the early 70s, whether I should try journalism after all. Um, and it was a struggle to get where I wanted to be as an academic and as a teacher. But I have come to understand that struggle is part of life and you must persevere. And it doesn't always mean you'll get what you dreamed of or what you wanted. But if you persevere and you reminded yourself from time to time of your, of your minor victories as well as your major defeats in life, um, that's, that's what one hopes for. That may be it. So in that sense, I, I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, as if I've done everything right. I haven't. But I do feel as if um, things worked out in a way, in a way that um, I was happy with. I think that's a wonderful way to put it, that you, you're not always going to be happy with how everything goes. No. But it's what happens, and then you accept it. And, and you accept it, yeah. yeah. You learn that life is, is at times quite unfair, as the saying goes, and at times it's quite fair and rewarding. <laughs> you, just have to, you just have to accept the good and the bad and make the most of them. I agree, and I'm trying to teach that to my children who do not always <laughs> see it that way. Um, all right, so now I'm going to go to these nine rapid-fire questions, although I've learned they're not always as rapid as maybe I intended. Uh, so let's start. So is it better to be a planner or a doer? I'd like to be both. I'm going to be rapid-fire in my answers if I can. <laughs> sure. Are you a risk-taker or more risk-averse? Again, I think I'm both. I mean, I'm risk-averse in that I've stayed in the, the career I began. In this day and age, you know, people shift careers. Um, I stayed in a career I started where I was comfortable. And yet, on the other hand, I took the risk of embarking on two mammoth book projects, biographies of Khrushchev and Gorbachev. And I wondered, especially in the first case, whether I would ever finish it. People would ask me, how are you doing? And I'd be embarrassed to say, well, you know, not all that well. 
And after a while, they would stop asking, and that was even more embarrassing. So I feel as if I've, I've, I've tried to avoid certain kinds of risks, but I've taken others. Is it better to make connections online or offline? Well, I'm old enough so that the whole idea of online connections still is a little strange. I, I've come to appreciate them. I do have a Facebook page. But on the other hand, there are limits to how far you what how deep the connections can be online and so i'd certainly say online is a help but offline is what you need what's more important the journey or the destination it's funny i'm answering all of your binaries i'm giving the answer both <laughs> uh the journey is of course what life is and if you can reach that destination that's wonderful and i guess i feel i have but you wouldn't get to the destination if you didn't endure the journey. So this is one that's not binary, so you won't be able to say both. So name something on your bucket list. Well, you know, I'm not sure I have a bucket list. Is I feel as if I've, I've traveled a lot, um, many times to Europe, too many times to the Soviet Union, once to China. I've never been to Africa. I've never been to Japan. I guess I've never been... To Latin America, except for the Caribbean. So I guess I'd like to do some of that at some point. Is there, is there one particular country you're really either interested or fascinated by wanting to go and see? Hmm. Maybe Japan, because I've read about it. I've heard about it. I've had Japanese students. I think I, I did stop there on my way to Beijing at the airport, but I didn't get out of the airport. But I don't have the sense that I have a bucket list of things that I must do, and if I don't do them, I will, I will die unsatisfied. I feel as if I've lived a good life. It has been satisfying in many ways with a wonderful wife and wonderful kids and now grandkids. And um, So I don't go around thinking about a bucket list. What one book, other than yours... Would you recommend to help people be more successful? I'm not sure I have an answer to that. I mean, if that means how to succeed books, I don't think I've read any of them. I've sort of figured out on my own as best I can what I needed to do. Now, if it means general books, uh, you know, inspirational books more generally, then there, too, I, I, I would need to think about. I don't think I can give you a rapid answer to that. Fair Name one of your favorite movies. You know, when you get to be my age, you go to movies and you start forgetting which ones you've gone to. And I actually have gotten to the point where I write down a sentence or two about movies, trying to remember them. And the book in which I wrote down <laughs> is downstairs. So... Nothing, I mean, favorite movies, inspiring movies. The movie that actually comes to mind, I saw as a young man, it was uh, um, a movie made by this, I guess he's Spanish filmmaker, Buñuel, B-U-N-U-E-L, I'm probably mispronouncing it. And it was called Viridiana. And it was a strange movie about a strange gathering of, uh, of people in a strange house in a strange place. And I just found it, utterly puzzling and fascinating at the same time. So for what it's worth, I'll name that one. Excellent. Now, this will be an interesting having written some biographies, but what would the title of your biography be? 
Well, one thing I've learned from writing other people's biographies is that I'm not sure I want anyone to write mine. Um, you know, in, in the sense that um, I can see when you write somebody's biography, if they, you know, agree to help you or if their relatives agree to help you, they are inevitably naturally hoping for the best possible version of their life that you can produce. But the chances are, if you're trying to be objective, that what you produce will be balanced and will include the good and the bad, and that they, in the end, will not be entirely satisfied. So I do not expect anybody to write my biography, but if somebody did appear and wanted to, that would be my sentiment precisely. I don't know if I want to get into this. And as for writing my own autobiography, I don't think my life has been interesting or exciting enough that uh, I would want to, and I'm also a somewhat private person, I don't know that I would want to try to display it for the world to contemplate. And even if I did, I don't think there would be that many readers. I'm sure Jane would appreciate it. <laughs> if you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why? Well, I again, this, this probably would have the risk of answering this question is I would seem too high on my own horse. Uh, I do think that one of the things that characterizes my books of about Khrushchev and Gorbachev is a combination of a kind of scholarly perspective and a scholarly approach that as I know the literature, uh, I know the context, I've done my homework in the archives like a scholar. But I picked up along the way, partly from my father, the journalist, a sense of what is a good story, what is a good anecdote. And what I've tried to do in these books is to combine though, these two things. And uh, you know the phrase, show, don't tell. In other words, don't, I, I try not to spend too much time in my own voice explaining things, but rather try to let the stories and, and the words I quote and the pictures I try to paint, if that's the right word, tell their own story. So that is my uh, perhaps um, unrealistic and too immodest idea of a kind of approach that I have adopted, but I certainly don't claim to have invented it. And I'm sure there are other people out there who come very close and perhaps do a better job of the same thing. Well, I'm definitely in support of anything where you tell. Part of what I'm trying to do is share stories and, and have people be able to tell their own story. Well, in, the, in that sense, you're showing it in the sense that you're not telling other people's stories. You're letting them let, letting them show their own stories by telling them. Well, that that's my hope. Or tell them by showing them, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, Professor Talbot, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, with us, and I want to give you an opportunity. So, the the book obviously is out, and you, you, we want to let people know about it. We'll put it in the show notes, uh, link to Amazon. Um, is, is it? It's out now. I know you're you're touring with yes, it. It's, it's out. In fact, what I'd like to do, I, I actually have something I never expected I'd have, which is a website. Oh, please share with that, and we'll and include the, that as well. <laughs> and my uh, the 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 former colleague, now webmaster, who's helped me create it, keeps telling me. Tell them what your website is. Please and tell us. I almost always forget to tell them. So this time I'll tell you. It's williamtaubmanbooks.com. 
WilliamTaubmanBooks.com. And again, we will include that in, in the show notes. Okay. Uh, and are you active on social media? You said you had a Facebook page. I do have a Facebook page. For a long time, I just let it sit there. I rarely post anything, but I have a lot of friends whose lives I try to follow and who perhaps follow mine, and, and it's a lot of fun. I try to spend some time, but not too much, <laughs> on Facebook. It's all about balance. Well, Professor Paul, I, I it's been great to chat with you. Uh, I really appreciate uh, everything that you've shared with us, and, and I want to thank you for helping us connect the dots. Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks so much for giving me your attention. I appreciate your time. And if you made it this far to this outro, that means you may have listened to the whole podcast, which is awesome. My hope is you got some value, some little nugget out of this piece of edutainment. If so, I'd be very grateful if you would subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a glowing review, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. You can visit our website, Nine Dots Podcast, for all the deep, rich content. Thanks again for helping me connect the dots.